I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Darawal people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We're, we're innovators. We want to keep keep pushing. Um, and I think it's important in the wine industry at the moment that you really keep doing that. So certainly for a, a company like ours, we work in that innovative space. So we've got to keep pushing. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Duncan Shuler is chief winemaker at Geese and Wines in the beautiful Marlborough region of New Zealand. Head of a large production of wine, Geeson is also leading the way in non-alcoholic wines. Duncan joins me today to tell me more about what he's been up to just across the ditch. Hi Duncan, thanks for joining me. Hi Shante, it's a pleasure to be here. How are you? I'm really well. Now that's not a typical New Zealand accent that I hear. <laughs> it sounds like a bit of a mix. Yeah, it is a bit of a mix. I, I've lived in New Zealand for just over 20 years, um, but I was born in England, um, spent some time growing up in Scotland and a little bit in uh, in Cyprus. And uh, yeah, so here I am 20 years later, I've, I've still got the English accent. Ah, oh, well, that's good to hear. And it's probably, it's a little bit softer as well. So I can feel like you've got a bit of influences from everywhere, which is always nice to have a bit of a mix. It creates a lot of interest, I think. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> So where are you joining us from today? Where are you sitting? Yeah, I am sitting at the winery here in Marlborough and it's a beautiful day. Um, we've had a bit of rain lately and uh, we've had some sort of lovely midwinter, uh, almost floods to be honest. And finally the sun has come out. It's a gorgeous afternoon. Not too hot, never gets too hot here in Marlborough, but uh, beautiful day. Yeah, I mean, you get so much sunshine hours, but like you said, it's always kind of a nice temperate climate. I was not prepared for how beautiful the sounds were as you fly into Marlborough. I I thought it was just breathtaking and I, and I was kind of overwhelmed. So what an amazing part of the world to work in. Oh no! Look, at it, it absolutely is, and I think I think we're lucky in the wine industry that you uh, there are a few regions that you know, are good wine regions that aren't stunningly beautiful at the same time and have a great climate. Uh, and Marlborough is certainly uh, one of those. Uh, it's it's beautiful. It's it's probably not really regarded as a tourist destination, but it's got a lot on the doorstep. Fantastic um, uh, natural beauty in the Marlborough Sounds, and obviously um, New Zealand's most important wine region. Yeah, I mean maybe maybe that's a good thing that it's not such a tourist destination so that you can keep it to yourself but a lot of people tend to have um their kind of batch holiday places around the sounds is that right yeah no you're absolutely right no it is it's uh the sounds is a lovely place it's one of those sort of spots where you can just get away from it all um get out on a boat and stay at a batch that's only accessible by the water and you're going to see dolphins and even penguins and do great fishing um so it's kind of one of those rare untouched parts of the world and i love it um, I think I, I love the sort of almost the rusticity as well of Marlborough. It is uh, obviously a world famous wine region, but it's still very unaffected. It, it's very real and it's all about the produce, you know, the wine, the food. Um, it's great. I love that. I think my aim is like in life is to meet somebody that has a batch holiday so that I could maybe occasionally be invited. So it's got to go right to the top of the list now after speaking with you. Yeah, look, it's, oh, it's definitely on my list. I think owning a, owning a little piece of the Marlborough Sounds is, is definitely on the bucket list for me. <laughs> I can completely understand that. So tell me how about how you came to find your way into wine all the way from the UK. Yeah, look, it was uh, it was quite a roundabout trip. Um, 
I was, I suppose I was exposed to wine growing up. And uh, I think I mentioned earlier, I was, I was very lucky when I was quite young that we lived in Cyprus for a few years. And um, I've got some great memories of, you know, we'd eat out probably three or four nights a week. It was so cheap. And uh, sitting in local tavernas, sometimes overlooking the water, mum and dad would always have, you know, a bottle or a carafe of the local village wine on the table. And they'd usually give me, you know, a small, uh, tiny sip just to taste it and, and have a smell of the wine. And I found it fascinating because you could see everything going on around you the vineyard was often just over the fence and there'd be a donkey working in the vineyard and you know, often see the the fruit being picked um so i found it fascinating and then sort of growing up i i just started to develop a really interest in in wine and um i sort of was was really interested in science and the two sort of came together um when I left school, I actually studied marine biology and uh, studied that in Glasgow, of all places, in Scotland. Um, great science university, but probably not famous for marine biology. Um, and then I moved to New Zealand in 2000 and started teaching scuba diving in New Zealand. And at that point in time, the wine industry was really just getting going. It was it was really developing and there were some very exciting wines coming out onto the market and the industry was, was seeing a lot of success. Um, so I sort of conned on to that and saw the opportunity and went back to university studied wine and uh, went from there fascinating and what a place for you to kind of you know have all the things that you love together in one place when I read that you studied marine biology I was like oh that's going to be such a distraction because I'm fascinated with marine biology and I thought try not to ask him too much about that and make sure you ask a bit about his day job <laughs> do you get into the waters um, much over there these days Oh, look, I, I do. I probably not as much as I used to. We've uh, we've got a four and a half year old now, so I have to say that um, I uh, I probably don't go diving as much as I used to pre pre children. Um, but I still get out there when I can, and it's uh, it's we're, like I said, we're very lucky. You can drive for thirty minutes, jump in the water, um, and you know it's beautiful diving. Or if you want to catch um, lobster or abalone, you know power the New Zealand abalone. There's a lot of it here, so it's it's a fantastic place for a bit of a mecca for. For, for diving really and uh, certainly I think when you fly over the Marlborough Sounds if you're heading to Wellington there's on more than one occasion I've seen some some whales out in the in the sounds uh, from the from the from the air so it's it's stunning oh I mean the the water life and the aquatic life that you must have over there other than that incredible you know produce that you can get but what what are the other kind of um attractions underwater attractions that you're kind of looking at is is it kind of quite a rocky bottom in the sounds or are you is you know is there a lot of kind of weed about yeah look it's really diverse um you've got you've got what's called the kaikoura coast so down the uh the uh, the coast of the north island sorry the south island um heading down towards the town of kaikoura you've got a beautiful rugged rocky coastline and that was quite heavily impacted by the earthquake of 2016 um but it's still absolutely stunning and that's classic sort of rocky almost sort of california coast style where you've got a lot of a mm. lot of sea life um very vibrant coastline and in the south itself um uh, rocky shoreline sandy bottom um, but there's a lot of wrecks there's a lot of shipwrecks out in the Marlborough Sounds um, one in particular called the Mikhail Lermontov uh, which is a famous uh, vessel that went down quite a few years ago now and it makes for an incredible dive oh my gosh I love wreck diving oh well that just br- that's another reason that I have to get over there and do some diving I just have to brave some of the chilly waters and be prepared for a thicker suit <laughs> than perhaps what I'm uh, used to over here in Sydney tell me a little bit about um 
your experience working throughout New Zealand? Because you did work both in Martinborough and Central Otago, incredible winemaking regions. And how did you decide to settle in, in Marlborough and how did you come to work at Geeson? Yeah, look, it's uh, I, I have sort of worked a bit throughout New Zealand and I think that what I was probably doing early on in my career was I was, I was sort of following Pinot Noir. Um, I love Pinot Noir. I think like a lot, a lot of winemakers in cool climates, it is that yeah that, that great variety that can give you so much joy and so much heartache at the same time. And you know, obviously in New Zealand, we're lucky that we, we can produce some fantastic Pinot Noir. We've also got several very distinct Pinot Noir regions, Martinborough and Marlborough and, and Central Otago being three of them. Um, so that was part of me really sort of developing hopefully developing skill to be able to create Pinot Noir in, in different shapes and forms and different styles and different regions throughout New Zealand um, in terms of Marlborough I, I came here it was really opportunity I think you know sort of obviously commercially Marlborough has been very very successful um, since I joined the wine industry in sort of 2004 um, it's where a lot of the attention has been um, but then with that you know obviously with the, the, the success of Sauvignon Blanc um, which has driven you know the industry here in New Zealand um, I love that I love Sauvignon Blanc um, you know, I love what it can provide consumers especially at the price point but I still had to be able to feed that that little flame for Pinot Noir um, and I was watching Marlborough and you could see that in places like the southern valleys of Marlborough more and more Pinot was being planted in more appropriate soils and, and, and viticultural aspects um, and so the Pinot Noir was just getting better and better and better and it really excited me so it was an opportunity to further my career but also still try and craft some really lovely pinots i don't blame you for following pinot around the world in fact i think that's a pretty good plan and geeson makes some incredible pinot noir um the claven sticks out of my brain because i think that is um, a pinot noir that i have been able to pick out of a lineup when i've tried it because i think it's so site specific and it's just so damn delicious. In fact, I did drink it on my wedding day, the 2014, um, and I was in seventh heaven. <laughs> so tell me a bit about um, the offering of Pinot Noir and how do you think Pinot Noir, especially Marlborough Pinot Noir, fits into the international market when when you go out into the world to sell it? Yeah, look, that, that's a really good point. I mean, I think when you look at a, a site like Claven, um, for us, in a way, we, we almost refer to Claven as its its own region. It's it's we, It sort of almost transcends Marlborough. It, it's not really Marlborough anymore. It's such a special site. And there, there, are, there are several of those special sites in the region, but Claven probably is the preeminent one. Um, very unique soil profile, fantastic aspects, a um, little bit of altitude, close, uh, dense, high-density plantings, uh, a lot of different clonal material in Claven. And, um, so it has the potential to produce, produce absolutely stunning wines. Um, Marlborough and Pinot Noir still don't entirely go hand in hand, I think, in some areas, because traditionally a lot of Pinot Noir perhaps was planted in the wrong places and produced um, quite quite light, very easy to drink, but quite light Pinots that weren't necessarily regarded as very serious, um, compared certainly to Central Otago and Martinborough. Um, but that's changing. I think we're seeing now that as people start to taste these new Pinots that are coming out as we get more vine age, we're planting more appropriate areas. Um, the wines have a wonderful structure and they have the ability to age which is fantastic um, so I think that the opinion internationally is is, is getting higher and higher of, of those wines and they're certainly doing well on the international sort of show circuit and, and reviews and things as well yeah definitely they are and I think 
also that there's now um, some really strong regions, you know, throughout New Zealand and you can kind of kind of like siblings almost there's there's the different spots that you go for the different styles. And I think the the broad scope of how good the quality Pinot Noir is from everywhere really brings them all up. But yeah, these days you definitely see people in a restaurant ordering, you know, I want Martin Brew. Pinot Noir, I want Otago, I want Marlborough, and they're quite distinctive in in their choices, which is so good to see. Oh, it is. It's great to see people really sort of start to understand those those regions and even sub-regions. Um, and look, that's what Pinot's all about, isn't it? It's about finding a wine that really expresses where it comes from. Um, and, you know, they're almost two different varieties when you when you see a, a Claven Pinot versus, you know, a Felton Road or something. They're so different in style, um, but they both have great Pinosity and, and they're just different expressions of, of a great variety. You are able to work with so many different ranges at Geeson. So spoiled for choice, I would say. You've got the Uncharted, you've got the Estate, now your Known Lows, your Organics, um, Feature Wines and Single Sites as well. What do you love about working with Geeson Wines? Yeah, look, I, I think I think more than anything, it's that it's it's the diversity that we have, um, and I think that I think you you sort of look at satisfaction with your work, and uh, it's always really satisfying to create something like a, a Claven Pinot or a Claven Syrah that that you know, does really well in a wine show or gets a great score. That's fantastic, um, but it's also great satisfaction to see wines at the other end of the spectrum at a very different price point, really uh, you know appealing to the consumer at that price point. That's really really satisfying. Um, and I suppose at Geeson, we've, like you said, we've got everything in between as well. We've got a, a, a broad range. Um, and then when you add the zero alcohols and the, and the low alcohols on top of that as well, all of a sudden you've got another consumer that you can really appeal to as well and a, a different occasion. Um, so that's that's fantastic. And look, it's just stimulating as well, making wine in so many different ways. Um, we're lucky we've got a lot of great people and the Geeson brothers themselves are, are really inspiring to us all. So um, no, it's a great place to be. Dad, tell me a little bit about the, the three Giessen brothers. It really sounds like a f- bit of a folklore tale, but Giessen is really important to um, the history of, of New Zealand wine production. So tell me a little bit about how Giessen got started. Yeah, so initially um, it was the three brothers. So you've got Theo, Alex and Marcel. Um, and in 1979, Theo and Alex um, left Germany and decided to essentially start a new life in uh, the Southern Hemisphere and actually flew to Australia first up. And famously, they landed in Australia and within a few days, it was a 40 degree day. They were stinking hot. Um, I think they were in Melbourne and they, they jumped in the pool and there was a great big snake in the pool. Um, so they jumped out and pretty quickly they said let's let's try new zealand it's, it's going to be a bit cooler and there's no snakes um so they did that and they found themselves near christchurch um and they were they were inter- interested in wine they weren't winemakers but they were certainly interested in wine they started looking at what was available in the, the local market um and the local shops the local bottle shops and they just couldn't really find anything that was very inspiring and they're looking around sort of saying well look this is this feels like a great wine region we could maybe we could make something um and lo and behold they did and they got in touch with their younger brother marcel who then studied winemaking and then came over to new zealand and they started i guess 
Jackson Winery in the early 80s. Um, pretty quickly, they also um, started making some wine in Marlborough. And of course, you know, it was great timing as well. The Marlborough um, scene with Sauvignon Blanc was really taking off and they made some really fantastic examples. Um, and uh, the rest of it is just a, a fantastic success story. Certainly has, and, and then grown, you know, exponentially. I've actually met um, Theo and I think his, his wife and uh, been out on their boat at one stage. And uh, my goodness, it was, I mean, they certainly know how to host um, a bunch of sommeliers on their boat. And we had lots of amazing wines and a pretty amazing time. And, and they were absolute characters. And, and yeah, the hospitality and generosity shown by them, I think is something I'll remember forever. Oh, no, brilliant. No, they are. I mean, they're, they're, all, they're all legends. Uh, three very different brothers, um, but they're all brilliant at hosting in different ways. And uh, no, Theo has always got a lot of great stories. He's just a, a great personality. <laughs> I love a good storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about this non-alcoholic range. I really feel that New Zealand at the moment is, is leading the charge in that range. How did it come about that that was something that you wanted to offer? And then where do you start with something like that in terms of not having a huge base of um, comparable kind of products? Yeah, look, I think I think that that point you made there is, is part of the part of the motivation that wasn't there wasn't much choice. And it sort of came from um, a fitness challenge or a health and well-being challenge, I should say, in, in 2019, at the start of 2019. And across the company, um, pretty much everybody signed up to this health and well-being challenge and you had to track what you were eating and how many steps you'd done and you couldn't drink alcohol. Uh, and the winemaking team, everybody signed up pretty quickly. Um, and then we all sat down pretty quickly after that and realized that none of us could drink wine for a month. Um, so this was <laughs> it was a bit of a shock horror moment. Um, so we, we called an emergency meeting and sat around and discussed how we're going to we're going to do this without losing the challenge uh and literally we said well look can we can we look at zero alcohol wines and we looked what what was available in the market and there really wasn't very much um and we weren't yeah the wines were okay but we weren't particularly inspired by them so we literally just said look let's let's make one let's try and make one um the spinning cone technology was just available in new zealand and so we started some trials and uh, had a bit of a play with sauvignon blanc um and we loved the trials we put together a wine that we thought looked great um, we showed it to a few other people in the business and everyone said look this is this is something that could really work um and then we just went from there so um pretty quickly we we saw there was a great opportunity the market was really just getting going outside of new zealand um and we just went full throttle we bought the machine itself we bought a spinning cone and started making um obviously more sauvignon blanc but then other varieties as well pinot gris and um you know, red Merlot. Um, and rosé so that's fantastic yeah there's such an offering that you have now I've had the Sauvignon Blanc and I haven't tried the others but Sauvignon Blanc I was amazed just how much it represented Sauvignon Blanc I mean you know a variety that if you released onto the market and it didn't have those qualities you'd be pretty disappointed but so vibrant I just felt that it, it left you not wanting um you, not wishing for anything else which I is pretty hard especially when you drink a fair bit of wine and you try lots um some of the the products i find just leave you thinking oh there's just something missing whereas really found that that wine didn't it just gave you all the vibrancy and freshness and all those beautiful kind of um tropical fruit flavors as well but run me through a little bit about this spinning cone technology and and I i feel that there's been a few different ways over the past centuries of of removing alcohol so why does the spinning cone change things 
Yeah, so um, I suppose one of, one of the ways people used to remove alcohol was with reverse osmosis, which does work quite well. Um, but it, it's very, very, very difficult, almost impossible with reverse osmosis to fully dealkalize wine. Um, and with spinning cone technology, what you're able to do is is a couple of things. You're basically, um, essentially the way it works is a form of vacuum distillation. So it is really just a still, but it's working under a vacuum. And the spinning cone part of it supplies you with a very, very large surface area so you can really distill alcohol at very low temperatures um, and that's obviously key because at low temperatures you're not going to detrimentally impact the flavor of the wine um, but it also allows you to do two things it allows you to remove the alcohol but before you do that at really really low temperatures you can actually remove just about all of the aroma um, so you can capture the aroma and spinning cone technology is actually used in the perfume industry where they do exactly that they'll concentrate mm. and capture dif- dis- uh, distinct aromas so you can take a Sauvignon Blanc and, and capture the aroma of the Sauvignon Blanc put it to one side and then you've basically got a base wine with with pretty much no flavor or aroma so the most neutral white wine you can think of um, that goes back through the spinning cone at slightly higher temperature and that removes all of the alcohol and then you can blend some of the aroma back in to give you the characteristic of of Sauvignon Blanc or Pinot Gris or whatever it is you're making. Wow, so fascinating. It almost sounds like this could be, I want, is this used in, I mean, I don't know, is this used in kind of non-alcoholic spirits as well? Because it makes it sound like if you wanted to make a distilled product that's quite neutral, that would be another way to do it as well almost. Yeah, look, it wouldn't it wouldn't be traditionally how they do it, but we um, we have done some trials ourselves, and we've got we've had some pretty exciting results. So um, so it is it's, a, it's pretty fascinating. They use it in coffee as well. You can use it to you know extract coffee aroma out of coffee beans. Um, so the, the technology's been around a lot, um, but in wine, obviously, it's relatively new. Um, there are other ways of dealkalizing as well, but for us, we've 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 settled on spinning cone. We love the technology. Uh, I think we're we're really happy with the wine styles we're making, and I think that uh, because we own the machine, we've actually got a you know a, a sort of a crack team of, of operators. Who, that's all they do is they run the spinning cone, and so they're really experienced with it now. And I feel like every time we make a new wine, we just get a little bit better at it. Um, so uh, so for us, it's it's the way forward. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I think that it's – I've really noticed in the last probably, you know, past year the the quality of these kind of no-unload products has really gone through the roof and I think that's probably thanks to this new kind of technology but also people getting more competitive and, uh, and like you said, having more products to be able to um, – compare them against and taste them. So we now have quite a few different um, wine judgings or uh, non-alcoholic wine shows and some of which you've won. I believe one over in the UK, was it, from the London... Yeah, we, we won some awards at the IWSC, uh, which was fantastic. That was great. The R is zero um, uh, won there. And we also won at uh, Wine Pilot as well. So we won some golds and uh, some trophies there as well. So um, it's, yeah, it's great great to see those wines starting to, starting to be recognized. Definitely. And it, it, like you said, it's so nice. It's, it's almost impossible to judge zero alcohol wines against other wines. It does need to have it its own category. And so it's great to see people like Angus Hewson from Wine Pilot, you know, creating these great awards where you can all get together and, and, and taste them. And, and like I said, this is really adding to um, another product for a whole different consumer group. And who do you find are asking for these kind of products? 
Um, it's been really interesting. It's been a, a fascinating learning for us. I think when we sort of got into it, we assumed that it would be people who, who can't or, or don't drink alcohol um, for medical reasons or, or pregnancy or decided to not drink alcohol. And certainly those um, do form a, a percentage of the consumers. But probably the biggest group is actually regular wine drinkers, um, people who still drink alcohol, but they've made the conscious decision to be a bit more mindful and reduce their alcohol intake maybe a few nights a week, just, just having a dealkalized beer or a zero alcohol wine. Um, and that's what seems to be driving the category for us, which which is actually quite cool. I quite like that because it means that you know we've, we've got a, the challenge is that we've got to produce zero alcohol wine for people who the night before, they might have had a really great full alcohol wine. Um, um, so they are true wine enthusiasts and I think that's where we've sort of uh, maybe hit a bit of a button is that we're sort of operating in that premium space um, and hopefully delivering a really premium zero alcohol experience, um, which is quite cool. Yeah, definitely is. I think it's really cool. And, and like I said, I think you guys are probably kind of waving the flag and, and leading the way and, and paving a path for others to follow. Uh, Duncan, tell me, is there a wine that you particularly look forward to making each year or is there a wine that, you know, piques your interest, you find difficult to make each year? What's that kind of stand out for you that you really, um, you know, tip your hat to? Yeah, look, I'd probably have to go for Clavin Syrah. Um, and I know I've, I've talked about Pinot and I could easily say the Pinot as well, but um, Pinot is always difficult to make. Uh, making good Syrah in Marlborough is extremely difficult. <laughs> um, it's, mm. you know, it's a really cool region. So we're talking about a variety that loves a little bit of warmth. Um, Clavin is a unique site and we only have a small amount of Syrah there. But uh, the, the exciting thing is you just don't know if you're going to be able to make it or not. So as you approach vintage, you're looking at the weather, you're looking at the vines every day. How are they reacting? Is it going to be warm enough? Um, have we got our crop level right? And then once you pick the fruit, trying to nurse it through. Um, so it's a really exciting wine because I think it's it's one of those ones where you, you don't even know if you're going to be able to make something that's good enough to put in the bottle. Um, and so it's a huge challenge. But when, when you get it right, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a fantastic wine. Yeah, and there's some really incredible Syrahs, you know, within New Zealand as well that um, are distinctively New Zealand. I think, you know, we, especially in Australia, we've got, you know, Shiraz vines coming out of our, you know, bottom. But I really think, you know, the, the some of the styles coming out of New Zealand, you just can't place them anywhere else in the world. And um, it's really exciting to see, to see the Syrah from Marlborough, um, you know, do just that. Talk to the Claven site is basically old vines, so thirty-year-old vines, um, deep clay-rich soils. Are you do you are you still sourcing the grapes from that? I think that that's how it started originally. Is that right? It, it used to be, yeah, but we, we actually own the vineyard. So we've owned the, vine, the vineyard for some time now. Um, so that's that's been fantastic for us because it's allowed us to then sort of manage, uh, obviously manage the vineyard. Um, and uh, particularly all of us just get to know it really well. We spend a lot of time up there. Um, it is only a very small amount of what we make, of course, really small production wines, but very important nonetheless. They really sort of, you know, they, um, they're the halo wines of, of the company. Um, and um, yeah, so we spend a lot of time up there deciding you know how things are being grown and pruned and everything else um so yeah so we we basically take all of the fruit and a couple of other partners take a little bit too oh, i was about to say you've devastated the other people that were making <laughs> wine from that site but <laughs> it's good to know it's in really good hands i believe it's certified organic 
Is that right? It is, yeah. Certified organic. Uh, that's that's a really important part of it as well. Is is that? And it's 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 just. I think to be honest, you just get better fruit when it's in balance organically. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that you guys are looking after it and I look forward to seeing what else the site can do. But like you said, with some great sites, there's only so much of it that can go around and you can only make so much at a time. So when it's released, you just got to get your hot little hands on it. Yeah, no, that's right. And certainly something like the Syrah, I think, uh, yeah, tiny, tiny production. We don't even produce it every year. Um, and, and the Pinot and the Chardonnay. And look, I suppose that's uh, when you talk about the sort of the fine wine end of the spectrum, that's those little things that make it so special as often they are rare. They're hard to find. Um, but when you get one, hopefully it's a, it's a great wine drinking experience and it really takes you to where it comes from. It's got that expression of place. Fantastic. And what's what's next for you in the next couple of years? What are you looking forward to and, and what's the next challenge for you other than keeping up with all your outdoor activities and kayaking and fishing and diving and and uh, raising a child as well? What else is next for you? Yeah. Yeah, gosh, I'm sure we get school next year. That's scary. But no, look, it's there's a, there's a lot um, going on. We we don't we don't sort of uh, we don't rest up and, and and take it easy at Geeson. If we find we're having a success, we we like to look at what we're doing and say, well, how do we get a bit more? How do we make the wine better? How do we sell a bit more of this? Um, so we're, we're innovators. We want to keep keep pushing um and i think it's important in the wine industry at the moment that you really keep doing that so certainly for a, a company like ours we work in that innovative space so we've got to keep pushing um i think like you said before we are in a way leading the charge with the zero alcohol space but you know we, we can't rest on our laurels we've got to keep pushing that and make sure we stay ahead of the pack i suppose um so there'll be some new products i'm sure coming out um meanwhile i think we want to still be regarded as a producer of some of the the best wines in New Zealand so um, keeping the Claven wines and the Ridgeblot wines and the Uncharted wines really at the top of their game as well um, so plenty for us to, to, to keep on top of <laughs> yeah it sounds like there's absolutely no rest for the wicked but it sounds like you work hard and you also know how to play hard as well at the same time so it sounds like a good balance yeah, no, it is, a, it is a good balance. Yeah, no, definitely. It's saying that's the most important thing, isn't it? So uh, you can uh, you can you can work really hard, but if you don't have that that sort of playtime as well, um, it gets tricky. Definitely, Duncan. If you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, if you had to narrow it down to three, what would they be and why? Yeah, look, it's it's a really really tricky question. Um, and to be honest, it's uh, three alcoholic beverages. I was. I would have to have a beer of some sort in there. I can't imagine, certainly during summer, finishing a hard day work or during vintage, finishing a day of vintage and not being able to have a beer. Um, so I'd certainly put like Pilsner in there. I'd, I love craft beer, but I mm. find that, um, yeah, the really hoppy sort of high alcohol beers, you have one and, and then that's sort of enough. But a really lovely crisp Pilsner, um, whether it's sort of, you know, from Czech Republic or, or New Zealand or Australia, yeah. um, is great. And uh, so there's something I could drink with, with, with my mates when I'm watching the rugby or after a hard day of work. That's got to be in there. Um, and then I'd have to put Pinot Noir in. Um, it's got to be there. It's, uh, it's <laughs> such a wonderful grape variety. And I think probably specifically, I'd, I'd say Burgundy. Um, it can be fantastic. It can be really disappointing. Uh, but whatever you get, you're always <laughs> going to get some sort of emotional connection with the wine, good or bad. Um, and hopefully that sense of place as well. Where did it come from? 
uh, I think um, if you look at maps of Burgundy, I mean, I, well, I speak for myself and, and probably for you, if you're a wine geek, you, know, you can look at those maps for hours and they never get boring. Um, so that, and then talking of sense of place, I'd, I'd also go with single malt whiskey, uh, especially Islay malt. Mm. Um, I think well, I think I mentioned earlier, I grew up in Scotland for a little while and we used to go to Islay and Lewis and places on holiday every now and then. Um, and I think when I smell a good Islay malt whiskey now, it actually takes me back to when you step off the ferry in Islay, you, you sort of get the smell of, of the salt air, of the seaweed on the beach, and people are burning peat in their homes instead of wood, so you get the smoky, peaty smell. And the great whiskies, that's what they smell like. Um, I think for me, it's probably just about the best expression of terroir you can get. Uh, so that would have to be there as well for me. Um, so those, if I had those three, I'd pretty much be able to cover all my bases, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. And interesting to hear that about Islay because that's what you picture in your mind. And certainly you smell it from across the room when someone pours a good Islay whiskey. But it's interesting to, to hear you say that, that, that you step off the ferry and you feel that. It's kind of what I would always hope the experience is like. So uh, I think that they're really good choices. And like you said, you've covered all your bases. You've got something to drink at whatever time of the day or whatever weather. And um, it's hard to disagree with you. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a very difficult question, but uh, there's, uh, there's there's plenty to choose from, isn't there? But hopefully that, that covers everything. Definitely. Well, it's been so nice to talk to you, Duncan. Thank you so much for joining us for all the way from Marlborough. I hope I get to go and meet you in the flesh sometime and then pick your brains more about diving. Um, I'll do that on my own time <laughs> then, if that's okay. <laughs> um, but thank you so much. I, I love the geese and wines and I think you live in a slice of heaven. So I, I'm not surprised that that's where you ended up considering all the things that you like to do. No worries, Shantae. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, we hope to see you over here sometime and uh, we can show you around Marlborough. Sounds good. Cheers to you, Duncan. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Bye. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shantae Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.